What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement and one day soon a true proletarian revolution. But until that day comes, I'm your host, Josh, and I'd like to say thank you so much for stopping by. Today we got a good one for you. I did a fantastic interview between the host of Unmasking Imperialism, Ramiro Sebastian Foynez, a good comrade of mine, and Comrade Libre X Sankara from Troika Collective, who continues to uh, come on the show and have great conversation. Uh, Another person who I would call a great comrade of mine. Um, We talk about a lot of things, but we focus mostly around the elections in Nicaragua, um, as well as the overall situation in Central and South America. Um, I hope you enjoy the show, so feel free to let me know what you think. Uh, And yeah, uh, thanks for uh, tuning in. Hey, what's up, y'all? It's Libre Sankara, a.k.a. Comrade Libre, um, coming to you from the belly of the beast, um, a.k.a. Miami. Uh, also, you know, we still November, so shout out to our indigenous comrades um, that have been resisting colonization since 1492. Um, and yeah, I'm here with Troika Collective, um, you know, just uh, trying to spread the knowledge and the truth uh, to overcome the imperialist lies and move towards revolution. Glad to have you here with us again. Awesome to have you here. What's up, what's up, comrades? Uh, my name is Ramiro Sebastián Funes. I'm a Honduran communist content creator based in LA. Shout out to Cali, shout out to Chumash Nation, where I'm speaking to you from. And I'm originally from New York, I'm Honduran, but I have been really active in the Nicaragua Solidarity Movement. I produced a documentary earlier this year, Nicaragua Against Empire, highlighting Nicaraguan resistance to US imperialism. And I also am the host and producer of Unmasking Imperialism, a anti-imperialist communist podcast that exposes mainstream media propaganda. And I'm really honored to be speaking with both of y'all. Josh and Libre are two good homies of mine, so I'm glad to be able to have both of y'all on together. Yeah, it's really nice to have you both here. I like doing episodes like this where, like, we're kind of... Because I like doing guest spots, but it's sometimes uh, a bit uncomfortable when, like, you're just meeting that person for the first time when you're recording. Like, I literally just met Libre not too long ago, but it's, like, it's cool to have, like, a little bit of, like, uh, meeting already so that when you go to talk, it's a little bit more, I don't know, relaxed. But um, yeah, so we're here to talk about everything that's going on, uh, thanks to the gross imperialist country, one of which that we live in. But of course, uh, a lot of the global north is fucking around all throughout Central and South America. Um, and that's really what we uh, we want to cover today, because uh, for a lot of folks who don't know, because I mean, I never learned about any other countries like political uh systems didn't really learn about like when elections were going on across the world so i would assume you know a majority of people who aren't politically active don't really know but uh this you know period of time we're in right now a shit ton of countries down in 
Central and South America are having elections. Um, you have countries like uh, Chile, which are uh, doing a referendum on their constitution, even rewriting that. You have uh, countries like Honduras, which uh, just had their election, um, which you folks just talked about on your stream. And of course, uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela, many countries are <clears throat> having their elections at this time. And it's uh, important that we talk about this because, as we know, the Biden administration, uh, but you know, not especially the U.S. imperialists, are constantly spreading lies and propaganda about these elections, constantly spreading uh, misinformation about the governments and about the revolutions which have taken place in many of these countries. So it's uh, it's awesome that we get to talk about this, and uh, we especially want to focus in on a few different ones, but especially uh, Nicaragua, because you both have experience in uh, going back and forth to Nicaragua, being able to participate and solidarity action. So just to start off, would you both maybe want to go over a little bit of uh, your history with uh, Nicaragua and uh, the delegations there? I'll let, Ramiro, I'll let Ramiro go first because he's the reason why I went to Nicaragua. <laughs> they, they, thank you so much, uh, comrades. Um, so yeah, so my history with Nicaragua is actually, it's interesting because it's tied in with my family. So my family's from Honduras and my dad is from this town named Choluteca, which is right on the border with Nicaragua. It's about 10 or 15 minute drive away, depending on which highway you take, but it's very close by. It's like saying the distance from New York to like New Jersey, like a certain suburban part of New Jersey, just to right. give you some context. So even though they're technically two different nations, they're very close. We're talking about very small countries. And my father, his hometown of Choluteca was the training ground of the right-wing U.S.-backed counter-revolutionaries, the Contras, that were armed and trained by the U.S. in the 80s following the election of Reagan. And the Contras were drug runners who committed horrible acts of violence on both Nicaraguans and Hondurans as well. They were funded, armed, and trained by the U.S. and Israel. And also, interestingly enough, Taiwan, South Korea, and Chile under Pinochet. So there you have kind of the coalescence of all these different reactionary groups training these far-right extremists, anti-communists, who terrorized people on both sides of the border. They obviously made excursions into Nicaragua to fight against the Sandinista revolution, hence their name, counter-revolutionaries. And my father's hometown was completely destroyed and demolished in the 80s by the Contras, because what would happen is that there were constant gunfights, gun battles between the Sandinistas and the Contras. And be, not because the Sandinistas wanted to destroy my father's hometown, but because they were just acting in self-defense, the Contras were on the offensive. They were launching attacks from there. My father would tell me stories all the time how in the 80s, in that time period, we're talking about the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, that the Contras would show up to bars and restaurants with sacks of money. And these sacks of money 
were housed in bags that from the USAID that it would say like USAID is spreading democracy around around the world. Uh, and those rice bags, they will put cash, like instead of they're saying, oh, we're bringing aid to the Contras. And, and it was like in quote unquote rice bags. And it looked like these white bags where they had the USAID logo and it was all cash. So they would show up to these places like sacks of cash and guns, huge guns that nobody had ever seen, uh, drugs, cocaine. Uh, they would kill people, they would murder people, they would uh, rape women, they did horrible things. They beheaded people, anybody who was associated with the left or socialism or communism, uh, they killed. And my dad is not even necessarily political. I wouldn't even say he's on the left politically, but he's just a human being who was able to see just how crazy these people were. And unfortunately, a lot of them were orphans. A lot of them were people who, because of the Nicaraguan Civil War, were displaced, uh, were addicted to drugs, were just fed misinformation. And actually, if you go on my YouTube channel, uh, recently, uh, last week, I produced an interview that I did earlier this year with uh, Elida Maria Galeano, who she was one of the former Contra commanders who headed the Contra. She was actually trained in my dad's hometown. So when I was talking to her, she knew all the spots where, where I used to go as a kid. And she switched sides. She's not Sandinista. So she and well, she's somebody who will admit, like, you know, I was given misinformation and I was in a very desperate situation. The U.S. came with money and, and all these things. So I, I took it. So I, I grew up hearing about the Contras. And then basically, as I became a socialist, a Marxist-Leninist growing up, I started reading more about the Cuban Revolution, the Sandinista Revolution, uh, the Bolivarian Revolution, and seeing that Nicaragua, a nation that it's just like ours, like Honduras, or just like we're Comrade Libres from Boriquen, an oppressed nation colonized by U.S. imperialism has been able to resist empire, build autonomy. That always inspired me. And I think it wasn't until 2021, this year, that I was actually able to go to Nicaragua for the first time and see for myself the accomplishments of the Sandinista Revolution. I went back in March with the Friends of the ATC, the Association of Workers and of Campesino Rural uh, Workers that represents campesinos in Nicaragua. And it was just a really dope experience meeting former guerrilla fighters, meeting campesinos and youth, the women, everybody who's involved in the Sandinista Revolution. Uh, and I went again in July. I had to go back for the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution with my girlfriend Ophelia. A beautiful experience, one of the, the biggest socialist, communist public events I've ever been to in my life where you can be openly communist and, and everybody's cool with it, everybody's cheering you on, you don't look like a lunatic. And mind you, this is during COVID-19, right? So it's not like there was tons, usually there's even way more people. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of been my experience. Um, and if anybody wants to catch my series, just type in Nicaragua Against Empire and you'll find it on YouTube. And um, so my relationship to Nicaragua um, is I had a relationship with Kamed um, Ramiro, um, you know, doing interviews. And, you know, sure enough, when he, when, when he was in Nicaragua, we was talking. When he got back, we was talking. Then he dropped Nicaragua against Empire, and I was like, oh my God. Like, um, so there was an opportunity um, with the same organization, um, 
well, uh, affiliated organization called Friends of the ATC that does allegation, um, that does delegations and brigades um, to Nicaragua so that people can see for their eyes, right? Yo, imperialism is like, oh, there's a dictatorship. It's like, really? I didn't know dictators let brigades go in and see all the hard work that farmers are doing and the largest peasant movement, you know, the, the headquarters for the largest peasant movement in the world is in Nicaragua. Yeah, that's a crazy ass dictatorship. You know, they're really helping working class people. They're providing housing. Um, you know, they're teaching people how to do better ways of farming. And, um, you know, uh, I got to learn, I got to see um, what I already knew, right? So there's this, you know, um, the beautiful thing about uh, Marxism, Leninism, right? Ho Chi Minh says, um, science is a revolution, or revolution is a science, right? And so when I got there, I got to see the results, right? Of theory become action, right? Of the FSLN party um, and all the beautiful things that they were able to do. Um, and like Kamel Ramiro stated, right? I'm from Borinka and I come from, um, from a country that uh, was invaded by the US in 1898. Um, and so to go to Nicaragua was also to see a glimpse of what it looks like when we become free, right? To understand that, uh, that revolution is a process that happens, but it's also attainable, right? And it's not perfect, it's scientific. Um, so it's also beautiful. Um, it was also beautiful to see on that trip how they're dealing with the contradictions that were created by imperialism, but because they are, uh, it's a socialist government, they're actually able to address it in the same way that Cuba and Venezuela are able to resolve the contradictions of imperialism. Um, and so, man, it's just a beautiful place. We're going to be going back in January. Um, and so super excited. You know, Daniel Ortega, Democrat, Luan. So just forget all that imperialist hogwash, 75%. You can't fake that shit, right? Um, in the U.S. you can, though. So, but we ain't talking about the U.S. We're talking about an actual democratic nation that's, that's government supports its own people. Word. Well, thanks so much for both of you kind of going into your experience because it's like, like you both really hinted at, really being able to see with your own eyes and be able to experience like a whole different world. Not only is it like, I mean, I, I am not lucky enough to have been able to go yet. R Romero keeps trying to, it, Romero keeps sending me links, but like the, uh, it, it's it's gonna work out one of these times, he's gonna get me there. It's It's gotta all work out. But um, I feel like it like washes over you in that moment and you're like, holy shit, like a whole other world is real. It's not, you know, just in these books. It's not just in our mind. It's like real and people are building it like right now. Um, so that's really dope. Um, and uh, it's also cool to hear about it because like you said, like it offers a guide as like a real possible way to make, uh, you know, steps out of capitalism and for other countries to be working towards socialism and things like that. Um, so it, it was really awesome to be able to hear you folks go into that. But I think before we go too much more into the specifics, I think that uh, maybe we kind of cover why is it that oftentimes there is so much 
propaganda against these countries? Why is it that, you know, especially in Central and South America, but all of the global South, um, you see verbal threats or, you know, misinformation like the Biden administration putting out a report saying that the elections in Nicaragua were a sham. Um, you see actual physical violence with occupations, with uh, sanctions, with all these other forms of hybrid warfare. Um, but why is it really that countries like Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, and others are like constantly being bullied by the U.S. and other imperialist aggressors? I think a main fundamental part of it is economics, the base of economic, the base of Marxism is economic determinism that within society, the economic base of society, the mode and means of production, the way in which society reproduces itself and how the working class and the producing class is able to access that, that largely determines the phenomena that takes place in society. So under feudalism, for example, taking a step back, you had the mode of production was largely agricultural and the working class was the serf class and the ruling class was the nobility, the feudal estates and the religious orders. They dominated that mode of production. And even though the feudal serfs produced the value of society, even though they were the ones who were able to sustain the fiefdoms and the kingdoms. They had no political power. They had no power over the means of production, things like infrastructure, housing, the tools used to produce the wealth of society because the relations of production favored the ruling class, the kings, the priests. Moving forward to capitalism, you have the mode of production of capitalism where a small class of elites called the bourgeoisie who make capital by exploiting the value of the working class through what is known as surplus value. The working class produces more value than it is paid for. Every hour of every day, working class people around the world are exploited through their labor and that surplus labor, the extra labor that is taken from what they produce goes into the pockets of banks of mega corporations, Amazon, ExxonMobil, these huge banking institutions, and which Lenin further explains in imperialism, the high stage of capitalism, the rise of finance capital, because capitalism started with industrial capitalism, these factory owners that Marx talks about in capital. Then once we get into the era of Lenin, we have the rise of finance capital, where you literally have these magicians who don't even produce anything for just doing money magic and crunching numbers and making money from more money. This is the banking institutions. So this is the current stage of capitalism that we are not like, think about somebody like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, like they don't produce anything. They're, they're not producing a product. They're just, they have a service, they have a monopoly over that means of production. And the working class internationally has no power over that. And so anyone who threatens that order, that parasitic relationship is a threat to imperialism and to capitalism. It's kind of like when you have an abusive work relationship and you have that one boss and 
everyone is told to just keep their head down, to shut up, keep working. You have that one coworker who talks back, who stands up for their rights. He threatens because once you have one person resisting it, then everybody else is like, hey, wait a second. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start speaking out against this shitty boss too. And it creates a domino effect, right? And that's what happened in the 20th century where that one indignant worker, the Soviet Union got up and was like, fuck y'all, we're doing our own thing. And threatened the banks, threatened the international capitalists. Then you had the Mongolian Socialist Republic, you had the People's Republic of China, the People's Korea, the DPRK, Cuba, you know, you have Angola, Mozambique, Vietnam, right? We can go on and on. And soon, eventually, up to a quarter, they said, of the world was in the midst of socialist revolution, overthrowing the banks, overthrowing these huge capitalists and imperialists who dominate the world economy, and showing that you don't need them. You don't need to rely on these fake magic squares for value that you can create value based on the working class of people and the resources that you have on your on your country. And it's something that the imperialists are always fearful of because when that happens, when countries stand up and defend their right to produce for themselves and not for some foreign capitalist bourgeois, then it threatens their pockets. It threatens that re parasitic relationship of capitalist versus uh, proletarian. And so they need to make an example of it. Going back to the analogy, a smaller scale analogy, it's kind of like that really mean teacher you have in elementary school that puts like the, the class clown or the, the rebellious kid in the corner or in timeout or in detention to kind of make an example. Yeah, you're, Josh is probably that kid. I could definitely imagine that. So they're like, Josh, detention after school, three o'clock, go to the dean's office. So like, okay, that, that's what they're doing. That's what they've been doing to Cuba, to all these countries, right? To show and make an example. And to Haiti as well, by the way, Haiti that hasn't necessarily, it's not necessarily run by a, a socialist uh, government or party, but the, the people of Haiti have always had that rebellious spirit for since 1800s, you know, since the Haitian revolution. So they've always made, tried to make an example out of Haiti. Um, and so any nation or people that has rebelled against the dominant order, they make an example of them, right? They cut them off financially. They impose sanctions. They, they stranglehold them. They impose NGOs. They create these fake opposition movements. They, they use the media. It's a hybrid warfare campaign. They use all their magic tricks to make it seem like everyone is against this one nation or country. And they do that in order to maintain the status quo to scare people because one of the best things you can do to control people is get them in a state of fear to say if you if you're if you do this next and this happened by the way in honduras because nicaragua liberated itself 1979 with the sandinista revolution and honduras similarly there was also uh, marxist leninist guerrilla movements in honduras one of the, the biggest one los cinchoneros that were inspired by the sandinista revolution they tried to initiate that. They wanted to reunite Central America on, under a socialist federation. Uh, the U.S. Marines came in, killed them, the, the, the Contras, the, the School of the Americas. So they made an example out of them, right? We see this happen throughout many parts of the world. And so the reason that the imperialist class targets nations that go against their order is because it go, goes against their economic system. 
And that's sort of what we have to keep in mind as Marxists that the economics, the, the base of society largely determines that class struggle. And it's very dangerous for a country like Nicaragua to say, you know what? I think we're good on McDonald's. We have platanos, we have yuca, we have beans. We're good. We don't need your shit. Because then McDonald's is like, oh, word? Like, we, you know, they, they depend on that, right? So it's kind of like, um, that's kind of where it comes from. So, um, you know, that's sort of an example of, of the economic base. Yeah, and I mean, you covered a lot, so I'll just I'll just make my um, response brief. Um, any successful counter to imperialism d helps imperialism decay quicker, right? Um, and you know, I think Kwame Ture um, said it best, right? That um, under imperialism, they will have you so scared of communism. But if you ask people what communism is, they cannot explain it. Why? Because you fear something that you don't and you remain complacent with something that you're used to. And people are used to being exploited and people are used to being pacified. And that is the society that we've created here on Turtle Island. A whole people that look at history and only want to give the impression of being revolutionary. That's the whole point of liberalism that's the whole point of ngos right to get the impression that you're actually moving society forward but the reality is you ain't doing shit because you're not trying to change the the primary contradiction which is imperialism which is the 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 basis of capitalism right um and so these countries provide what a reality looks like when your base of economy is not exploitation and that's why you need sanctions to create the illusion that somehow Cuba is a failed state or a failed country. And the reality is, despite sanctions, Cuba has the best healthcare system, right? That despite sanctions, Nicaragua is able to provide over 85% of its own food. The US doesn't even do that, right? And so despite sanctions, you still have, that's why the US is going to say, oh, we cannot. We cannot acknowledge Daniel Ortega as a legitimate leader because he actually runs a government and a country a lot better than we do. And if we acknowledge that, then we have to acknowledge that we're wrong and that we need a, that we need another system. And capitalism will never do that because then it would lose the basis. It will lose the veil that it has put over the the eyes of the masses of the people. And so um, that's why our obligation is to talk about these things, right? To to bring this knowledge and to, to hold a political line and a political ideology that we can bring to the masses so that they can also lift the veil. Because like Kamel Ramiro said, the moment that someone speaks up, other people are gonna start to speak up. And that's where you, that's the conditions for a revolution. And I think to bounce off of both of what you folks said, um, I think, if you look at all class society up until this point, really up until the earliest socialist revolutions, you have societies where a small minority of society owns the resources, the land, the capital, exploits the labor and benefits from the profits themselves. Whereas the majority of people are the ones being exploited, being oppressed, being incapable of even though they're building the very society themselves 
feeding themselves within that society, getting proper information about the outside world within that society, etc. Um, and I think that what countries like Nicaragua and Cuba and others, uh, you know, provide is a clear uh, picture of what it looks like when the majority of society participates in the administration of society because that is the beautiful thing about these countries i mean in your documentary uh nicaragua against empire ramiro you show and in many of your videos as well uh you show you know plain examples of just the average working class people being so influential and so involved in the local administration of their government in the development of the society in the expansion of you know healthcare, of social and human rights and all other things that are just plainly not even on the table here in the united states and what's crazy is and i'll say this quick and then we'll we'll move on to the next question but what's crazy is they they really are on the table like a very clear example is student loan debt there is a bill sitting on biden's desk right now to wipe clean student loan debt in the United States. And time and time again, him and Kamala Harris have said that they do not have the power to wipe clean student loan debt. Now let's talk about the fact that Joe Biden was the main reason, one of the main reasons why any of us even know this thing, student loan debt, because when he was in office far before being a president, he signed many bills to turn over the education system in the United States to private corporations. And so ultimately, none of us should be surprised when yet another puppet of the capitalist system refuses to give the working class people what they require. So, um, but, you know, really, that's why revolutionary governments like the Sandinistas and like others are so incredible and are such an example to the world and do lead to so much change is because once that picture becomes clear, once you start to really understand that, there's no going back. And once you get everybody involved, there's really nothing to stop you. Because again, the reason why right now capitalism is able to take control is because the state is under the control of the capitalist system. The representatives of society are capital personified. They are the dictators of society. We know them as the wealthy elites. Um, but they really do control everything. And that's crazy because you, you know, Libre, you said it, you know, we, we kind of remain um, comfortable whether we, we, we mean to or not. And we, we can't do that anymore because <laughs> the world is dying. But, um, you know, this is kind of a vague question, but I think that I would like to go into it a little bit. Um, what, what was really the Sandinista revolution? Um, the Sandinista revolution was an uprising by the people of Nicaragua that was cumulative, uh, cumulative in the sense that it built upon earlier figures, revolutions and ideas, both within the socialist tradition and within the Nicaraguan tradition, the Central American tradition, I think it's important to frame it in a way sort of like socialism with the Nicaraguan characteristics. Every revolution has its own adaptations. Wherever socialism is being built, it's going to have 
that flavor or that local vibe and feel to it. And that's really what the Sundanese Revolution is. And it borrows both from people like Marx, Lenin, and, and, and others, but it also borrows from Sandino. It also borrows from Carlos Fonseca, from Francisco Morazan. And it is a synthesis of those two, which I think any revolution around the world, whether it's DPRK, Kim Il-sung, who melded Korean heroes with Marx and Lenin, or whether it's Ho Chi Minh, who blended Vietnamese heroes with, with Marx and Lenin, and, and, you know, continuing further, Nicaragua is very similar. The Sandinista Revolution had several main inspirations within the country. So first, I would say is even going back to indigenous times, Nicaragua was a meeting place of many indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. It was the meeting ground of the Nawal people. So the Nawal language is reflective in a lot of the names. So like Galpa is city of, so there's Mata Galpa, the city of Mata, uh, Tegucigalpa, which is Honduras. Um, and also some of the words that are used in Nicaragua and Central America, it was the furthest extent of Nahuatl language and the indigenous customs uh, and the Maya as well. Then you have on the coast, the Miskitu people, Afro-Indigenous peoples, Mayagna people. You also have in the South, the Chipcha, who came from Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia. Then you have also reports of even Taino peoples traveling as far as Nicaragua. Because you have to remember, like, if you look at a map, Nicaragua is on, has a huge Caribbean coastline. The Tainos were known for their mastery of the seas of being able to travel to different areas the arawak nation the all these nations intermingled so in what is now today nicaragua there were so many different indigenous peoples who traded who engaged in commerce at that time small scale right not like how imperialism is today um so there's a lot of confluence of goods cacao you know corn plantain all these things and Later, so that's definitely a big influence, the indigenous, Afro-Indigenous communities that are there. Then in the period of post-colonization, you have Francisco Morazan, who was the main liberatory figure of Central America, who oversee, oversaw the United uh, Central American Federation that comprised of Honduras, Guatemala, Salvador, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, that were one large federation that had close allegiances with Jose de San Martin in Argentina. At that time, Jose de San Martin was an uh, independence hero of Argentina, Uruguay, and Chile, and what was called the United Provinces of Rio Plata. So that's how you see the flag of Argentina and Uruguay is blue and white. And so Central American Federation adopted that as well. And it's also, by the way, the reason why uh, Vosel is common in Central America. Uh, so, for example, in Spanish, we would say, um, uh, what's an example? Like, tú tienes is tu teo, and voceo is vos tenés. So, that's like another kind of dialect within Spanish. So, in Central America, we use voceo. Uh, we got that through Argentina, uh, Uruguay, because there was allegiances that were formed in the 1800s 
between the independence heroes of these different regions, Jose San Martin in Argentina, uh, you had Simon Bolivar in La Gran Colombia, Francisco Morazan in Central America. Later on, Jose Marti was somebody who fought for Cuban liberation. All these people were around the same era. Jose Marti a little bit later in the 1800s. And Francisco Morazan envisioned Central America as also being a major naval power because it had access to both the Atlantic Pacific Oceans. It was exactly between North and South America. So it was exactly at the crux of the Western Hemisphere. And that gave it a lot of power. And that's why the British also played a major role in trying to balkanize the region. If you go to Nicaragua today, a lot of the coastal cities are in English because that's where the English set up cotton plantations, uh, Bluefields, Corn Island, all these places. They also waged, uh, try to do a divide and conquer strategy where they mobilized, they got sectors of the Miskito community to try to fight the Central American, uh, pro-Central American unity community in Nicaragua. And Morazan was somebody who wanted to keep Central America united because he understood that the U.S. was next up on the chopping block in terms of imperialism, just like Bolivar as well. So Morazan and his vision of a united Central America has a very important role in the Sandinista revolution. And when you see the pamphlets and magazines, when El Salvador was having its people's war with FMLN, when Guatemala was having its people's war with the Mayan uh, indigenous communists, uh, Honduras as well, you had these greetings from the Sandinista front. They would say, uh, saludos morasanico, un saludo morasanico, like a, a, a morasanist greeting, you know, morasanist solidarity. They wanted to create this so, something similar to the Soviet Union uh, of, of Central America. Then in the 30s, you had Sandino, who's today, I would say, still the, the, the biggest hero of Nicaragua, Augusto Cesar Sandino, indigenous socialist uh, campesino from Nuevo Segovia in the north. And he's somebody who not only fought against the right-wing lapdogs of US imperialism, but fought in direct hand-to-hand -hand combat with US Marines. The, the Marines couldn't compete with Sandino because he understood the jungle, he understood the mountain, he had the backing of the masses. And he, was, he wasn't like a big dude, like he was a small dude, you know? He was like a, a, a humble working class, he was like Ho Chi Minh in many ways. He was somebody who understood the terrain very well, had the backing of the people. And Sandino actually used to play a lot of tricks on the Marines. He would sneak into the US Marine base and leave yeah, five foot tall. Yeah, exactly. He was he was tiny, you know, and he he would like go into the U.S. Marine base. He would like leave little notes like, oh, try and catch me, like like to hide and go see kind of stuff. And he would leave them notes and then come out and they would get pissed. So they always hated Sandino. He represented the, the working class majority of the people. He was deeply inspired by Emiliano Zapata. Sandino actually spent many years in Mexico in the period after the Mexican Revolution. And he was very inspired by Zapata and the Plan de Ayala and all that. And also collaborated with Fernando Martí in El Salvador, who was the founder of the uh, Salvadoran Communist Party. So Sandino is somebody who was very internationalist as well. And he had a, a great role. Uh, and then into the, 60, the 60s and the 70s, 
uh, Carlos Fonseca, who's one of the main founders of the Frente Sandinista, was definitely another contributor to Sandinismo and to the Sandinista revolution, who adopted Marxism-Leninism to the conditions of Nicaragua, combining it with Catholicism, progressive Catholicism, combining it with indigeneity, combining it with Sandinismo. And Daniel Ortega, who today is the president, Comandante Daniel, he's somebody who was alive for that. He was very young. Uh, but he was able to see that and he is the living continuation of that. Uh, again, he's the last living president of a country anywhere in the world that came to power in an armed guerrilla revolution. So he's living history and he's somebody who has seen all of that. So those are some of the ideological uh, and also Tomas Borges as well. So those are some of the main ideological uh, figures who have inspired Sandinismo. Yeah, um, the only thing I'm gonna add, cause you did a really good job, is um, Sandinismo is a revolution that's still happening. What we have to understand is when we go to places like Nicaragua, the people are very specific. They're like, we, we in 1979, we started the revolutionary process and they understand that it's a process. So it's constantly changing because it's scientific. So the needs of the people now are different than the needs of the people then. Right now, they're addressing um, things like patriarchy and gender inequality. Right, that's not something that was uh, that was part of the creation of the revolution, right? Initially, and so we had to understand that too because when people try to critique countries like Nicaragua, they'll be like, they'll be like, oh, but uh, they're misogynistic. It's like, yeah, no shit. He's a product of the environment that he grew up in, but the difference is they're actually addressing the issue. And they're addressing gender inequality. That's why it's one of the safest places in Central America for women. Um, that's why women are owning land. That's why half of Congress is a woman. So, you know, um, so it's a revolution that is constantly happening that's grounded, right, in misticismo, um, in um, a, a really a peasant's movement, which I think is the strength, right? Nicaragua is a peasant country for those that have not been there. A majority of people like work and have a relationship with the land. Um, and so a lot of the dual power programs that come out of Nicaragua directly affect positively and improve the quality of life of campesinos. The only example that I'll give is when I was there, I saw three generations of Sandinistas. The first one fought in the revolution and did not go to school. His son, um, helped to carry on the Sandinista, the Sandinista uh, revolution, but had to walk to the city to go to school. And his son, the grandchild, right? His school is right down the road, right? And so in, in, in um, Nicaragua, they're addressing the issues of the people based on where they live, right? They're making it specific. So now they're building universities and they're building schools in El Campo, in, in the rural areas. So you don't have to go to school to get educated, right? You can stay right where you are and the schedule is based off of the seasons. So, you know, it's the Sandinista revolution is, is still happening. They're still building it. And that is the beautiful thing about it that you can see like that you can see revolution in action. Um, and I think that's such a beautiful thing, um, you know, and it's inherently internationalist. The FSLN flag comes from Algeria, the, FL, the FLN party, right? The Sandinistas got their name 
from the FLN party. They added Sandino to it. So it's the FSLN party. Um, their flag is reflective of that, right? It's red and black. Um, and so I think these are the important things. Like before the country knew who its hero was, other people in other countries understood guerrilla warfare and knew who Sandino was. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. I think you're on mute, Josh. Oh, my bad. Good call. Thanks. I uh, I, I was just saying that um, it, it's it's a good point that you made that like revolution is a process that it is something that is actively being built because a lot of like you said the critiques that you hear are not you know I I would say not waged in a fair way because they're disconnected from the fact that this is something that is growing that is being actively built. And that is unlike, uh, you know, capitalist countries uh, directly interested in improving, you know, not not even just like because this is one thing I wanted to say. You pointed out that so many women participate. These are women who are not participating as, uh, uh, you know, a, a picturesque version of representation. These are women who are like you said, they are working class people who are. Uh, socialists who are building towards a more equal and equitable society, who are trying to eradicate misogyny, who are leading the fight to eradicate misogyny. So I think that this is uh, something that we have to also point out because, you know, it, it is really uh, part and parcel of capitalism to find representatives from within these different uh, you know, marginalized and discriminated, discriminated against communities who will be the mouthpiece of capital. And time and time again, many of us uh, kind of fall prey to that because of how identity politics are manipulated and, um, you know, ultimately really used as an aggressive tool to uh, take advantage of working class people yet again. Um, so kind of breaking out of Nicaragua explicitly, but also just talking about, you know, Central and South America in general. What is it really, uh, we'll make this a two question thing. What is it really that the collectives down here and the communities in the Americas have been able to do to, you know, prove false the accusations and attacks by the empire? And also, um, you know, how, is it that they are capable of, you know, building while also being in direct contradiction with the imperialist capitalist countries? Because, of course, we know that it's not simply a disinterest or a selected opinion by the United States that, oh, no, we just, you know, we would prefer to be capitalist and we would prefer you not be socialist. No. With capitalism, you cannot have capitalism living alongside with socialism. They are constantly going to be coming up against one another. So how is it that these countries all throughout the region have been able to resist imperialism and build up their people uh, within these, you know, formerly colonized and formerly imperialized countries? I think a big part of that goes to the idea of dual power, which the Bolsheviks came up after the Russian Revolution 
that in order to, even if you have a transitional government as we saw in Russia after the Tsar was overthrown, you still needed to have parallel institutions of governance that are able to feed, close, and house the people in order to maintain power. Because if you're not taking care of the fundamentals of people, then you're going to lose traction for a revolution. And that's number one. In order to keep a successful socialist revolution, you got to make sure people have food in their stomachs, a bed to sleep on, house, uh, houses to live in. And that not only that, but that they also know that the working class is fighting for that, that if they continue to fight and continue to push for more, that they will win more as a result of the working class itself winning those victories. And dual power has played an important role in, in what is known as Bolshevism, as the socialist revolution. And I think it's something that on the international scale is can be seen in two different eras. I would say the first era is from 1919 to 1991. Obviously, we know what happened in 1991 with the overthrow of the Soviet Union. I like to say it was overthrown in a coup and not, it wasn't collapsed, right? Because when we say collapse, it makes it seem like socialism failed on its own, that there was no Western intervention. We know that Gorbachev and several other traitors of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union purposefully took down socialism in the Soviet Union. During this time, the nations of the global South had, had an alternative to Western imperialism. They knew that they can trade with Russia and develop, develop their economies without help from the United States and Western Europe. And this played a very important role because what happened is that that gave nations around the world a lifeline to be able to build socialism in one country, in their nation, without depending on these European and Western imperialist powers. And this was very important. And so in a way, that's like dual power on a global scale. You had Soviets who were building Soviet medicine, Soviet cars, Soviet housing, Soviet weapon, you know, everything. And even today, if we look at Cuba, Nicaragua, the countries that had these revolutions during while the Soviet Union was alive and well, a lot of the influence comes from the ML of the Soviet Union. After 1991, we had obviously the collapse, sorry, the overthrow of the Soviet Union. I, I, I'm starting to sound like a bourgeois uh, collapse, but the overthrow of the Soviet Union. And we entered what Cuba and Cuba, we know as a special period, the decade of the 90s, 1990 to, to 1999, 2000, which was very rough for several nations, for Cuba in particular, for the DPRK, which at that, and Laos and Vietnam, which at that point still had communist parties in power and the DPRK was the Workers' Party of Korea. Nicaragua, 1990, entered the neoliberal stage. Violeta Barrio de Chamorros came in. The Sandinistas were out of power. So at that point, they completely lost political power and neoliberalism was running amok. And at that point, the only nation that was left was China, the People's Republic of China. In the 90s, the leadership of the Communist Party of China, I would argue, was not as anti-imperialist as Xi Jinping is today. I think there's a very clear difference between 
Xi Jinping, who Fidel Castro described as one of the most successful, competent communists and somebody to look out for in the 21st century. And if Xi Jinping has a Comandante Fidel's approval, then I'm going to think of him in, in pretty good remarks uh, for now, at least, you know, and Xi Jinping is somebody who is very brilliant in terms of creating international alliances with Iran, with uh, DPRK, with Venezuela, with Cuba, Nicaragua, etc. And in the 90s, Chinese aid, China stopped that era of both funding revolution internationally, but also emphasizing anti-imperialism. So the special period was rough. However, in 1999, 2000, 2001, you began having new leadership of the Communist Party of China who began seeing like, wait a second, this neoliberalism stuff is not, it's, it's running up dry. Like it's not gonna last long. You know, you have more financial crises. The dot-com bubble, the eventually 2008, the financial crisis, that was a big one because the 2008 financial crisis demonstrated that that dream, that myth of liberal free market capitalism, we won, the Soviet Union lost, that it was complete nonsense. And at that point, China, that was a very important point for China because China studied very carefully the 2008 financial crash, especially the housing, the subprime mortgage crisis. China's economy actually began growing even faster at that time. Their economy was untouched. They began moving away from the sort of neoliberal economics and moving back toward the centralized planning uh, a little bit, not fully, right? Not fully like as in the, the 50s, 60s with the, the Great Leap Forward and all that, but definitely more in that Marxist direction of five-year plan, 10-year plan, central planning, command-style economy that Xi Jinping is overseeing now. And it's been a success from 2008 to 2021. China's GDP has like completely multiplied. At this point in 2020, China's 2020 plan to eliminate all extreme poverty has been a success. They've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China. And it is because of the People's Republic of China, the solidarity that they have gotten, uh, that they've given to the nations of the world, and not even just socialist nations, by the way, even Iran, which is not necessarily socialist on paper, but follows the Islamic revolution. Iran has been able to stay afloat thanks to help from uh, China, as well as Russia to a certain degree, uh, Syria as well, um, DPRK, right? Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam, there's a little more contention there between China and Vietnam, but overall, uh, Vietnam has been able to, to survive more or less. When we talk about Latin America, China has played a very huge role in the success of the quote unquote pink tide or the red wave. It was under Chavez and, and in Venezuela after 1999, early 2000s that China and Venezuela began striking independent deals so that Venezuela no longer had to refine its oil through ExxonMobil, through BP, all these Chevron, these major petroleum institutions, he can do that through Chinese companies that benefited, gave a better deal to Venezuela. Uh, Brazil, Lula's government worked very closely with China. Also, Daniel Ortega, even though diplomatically, officially, there's more sort of overt tones to uh, Taiwan, Nicaragua, and the People's Republic of China still have a lot of trade uh, relationships. Also, uh, Cuba, 
as well. Cuba has been able to develop its tourism industry to bring a whole new fleet of cable cars to develop all these buildings with help from China. So China has played, you know, and, and, and at this point, right, you're going to have maybe some ultras who are going to be like Chinese imperialism, you know, China. And it's like, wait a second. Like if you talk to actual Latin American communist socialists, it's not like there's Chinese banks that are imposing high interest loans and debt on these countries. They're imposing very low interest loans, almost no interest at all extremely favorable terms for the Latin American countries. And it's important to, to recognize that, yes, China is not sending arms and weapons to peoples and, you know, protesting, whatever, but they're allowed, they're giving a, a breathing space, an alternative, like through the Shanghai Cooperation Bank, Infrastructure Bank, uh, the Asia Infrastructure Bank, all these uh, Chinese projects, Belt and Road Initiative to not have to depend on the World Bank and the IMF to get into these huge debts and to be able to develop your country. So I think a big part of that has been thanks to the two eras, one, the Soviet socialism, and two, uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, again, I'll just, um, I'll just add uh, briefly, I think, um, how do you, like, why can capitalism not coexist with, um, with socialism? Well, because capitalism is inherently parasitic, right? It's based off the exploitation um, versus um, socialism, which is for the people. Um, and so, like, you can't, like, the, it doesn't, that's the thing. It's, they're, they're opposites that don't create balance, right? Capitalism does not balance out socialism. Socialism balances out humanity so that we can begin to address contradictions, right? So, um, so I, I think we have to understand that that point, right? Uh, that that capitalism is and socialism are not yin and yang, right? Um, capitalism is parasitic. Socialism is what happens when you begin to allow things to happen under like under conditions where everyone has access to resources and that everyone is treated as human and they begin to address the natural contradictions that were not created under capitalism, like racism, right? This is why identity politics does not lead to revolution, right? Um, this is why we have to be principled as Marxist Leninists and as communists to understand that, um, right, that, that racism, um, that identity, that these things are created as a side effect under imperialism and are not things that have existed for centuries and centuries. Um, that's why it's about class. We have to understand our class position. This is what leads us towards, um, towards revolution. Um, and, and also, um, you know, what are the collectives that have been formed? The, um, the non-aligned, um, uh, the, I forget, it's the non, the non-aligned, I forget what it's called, but, um, and also just like the, the collaboration, the solidarity of sovereign nations, right? I think that this is important, right? When I talk about the independence of, of my country, Borinquen, I understand that that comes in collaboration with Nicaragua, it comes in collaboration with Venezuela, it comes in collaboration with China, because it's addressing 
the principal contradiction of the U.S. imperialism trying to uh, insert itself and colonize my country, right? And so I think it's about collaboration and solidarity. And this is why being internationalist and being um, an international solidarity with countries is so important because ultimately the people will prevail, right? This is why in my lifetime, capitalism has failed two times, not once, twice, right? This is a failed system. It, it, it is only still on its last feet because Joe Biden will say, oh, we cannot wipe out student loans pay the we're gonna bail the banks out we can do that but we can't do this other thing right it, they're making a decision but they want to make it seem as if their hands are tied no they want they they have made it very clear that capitalism is hell-bent on the exploitation this is why there are over 800 military bases this is why the u.s military is the largest polluter in the world and we in empire have a responsibility to address that contradiction here on Cerro island um and so things work in other countries because they're actually doing things for the people. These dual power programs is literally theory and practice, right? It is the action of revolution, not just talking of revolution. It's like doing the thing, the boots on the ground, going, picking beans like we were doing in Nicaragua, right? Going, picking the corn and making sure people are being fed. It's making sure people have access to electricity. It's making sure people have homes, right? Um, it's making sure people are educated. Hell yeah. Awesome points from both of you. I, I wanted to say real quick um, two things. So I'm going back and rereading some theory right now because fucking I, I there's no like organizations out here that I can get with while I'm working and shit, and I work this bum job where I sit and do nothing, so I just read books all day. Uh, so I'm rereading State and Revolution, and I think this really brings us to a really important point in what we're talking about right now, which is what we conceptualize as the state, the oppressive tool by which one class represses and suppresses the other class, is only a state in so far it is the minority ruling over the majority and so when you have countries like china when you have countries like nicaragua when you have countries like you know cuba who overthrow that regime who rid themselves of the exploiters of the oppressors and of the minority which is dominating over society and they take hold of the means of production of the avenues of power and of the administration of society, that ceases to be a state as we conceptualize it because now it's no longer a special tool for the small minority in society to be able to oppress the majority. But now the majority can squeeze out or expropriate the expropriators through natural means, through just simple administration of society by the majority. Because now the dude who's deciding whether or not food stamps is going to be getting enough money to provide for people might actually be dependent on that program themselves. And therefore, you have no special interest, no careerism, 
no huge, you know, profit margin that can be made by sitting in these positions of power and trying to actually uh, take hold of these things for individual benefits. Now you have the masses of people participating and actually administrating society themselves. So I wanted to make that point really quick. And then the other point I wanted to make is, you know, Libre, you mentioned that we've seen it, it, it crash and burn twice now in our life. All the way back when Engels and Marx were writing, they were saying, even back then, capitalism fucks up and falls every five to seven years. That was over a hundred years ago. They knew that shit was happening then. It's just continuously happening. We have depressions. We have recessions. We have panics. We have all these different terms for what is a natural tendency within capitalism. But when you have socialism, you have a system which is actually built on the mass ownership and the mass production of the means of production by the people for the people. You rid yourself of that exploitative foundation, which capitalism cannot rid itself of. It simply cannot. Um, and that kind of brings us to, you know, the most important question before we really ride ourselves out of this. So maybe uh, kind of stepping away, go ahead and say your last thoughts, plug yourselves and everything. But I'd like to ask the question, what is it that we inside the empire who recognize this, who know these issues are present, what is it that we can expect to be occurring with the pandemic continuing, inflation and supply chain shortages, pollution and other issues uh, kind of continuing what is it that we can do to actually fight this beast, especially within the belly of the beast? I think one of the biggest things we can do is everyone, first of all, I want to say everyone has a role in global revolution and every role is going to look different. I think that's important because a lot of times people just replicate what people do in other countries, for example, and not adapted to the conditions of the US. And it's important to understand that. The analogy I like to think about is a play. Whenever we have a play, we're watching a play, in this play called Revolution, we have the protagonists, the leading actors and actresses, and we have supporting cast. And I think that for those of us in the belly of the beast and the empire, we can, see ourselves humbly as the supporting cast. It doesn't mean our struggles less important or that that we're not needed. We're still needed, right? We may need to pull the curtain or we have a secondary or tertiary role, but it means that we're our role is going to be helping the leading cast, which is the international proletariat, especially in the oppressed nations, oppressed nationalities, the national liberation struggles, both in the global south and within the internal global south colonies of the first world of the US, especially when we're talking about Borican, New Africa, and also Aslan, Native American communities as well. And that's really important to mention because we can't just copy and paste what people are doing in another country adapted here and use the same tactics. For example, during the Cuban revolution, there were two components. One component of the Cuban revolution 
that gets the most attention is the guerrilla movement in La Sierra Maestra in the south of Cuba, in the mountains, in the campo, where the July 26 movement was organizing the guajiros or the, the peasant class. And that is the part of the revolution that is very important because at that point, we have to keep in mind that Cuba had a very large agricultural sector. The base of the people were in the countryside and the rural side. And that's the part of the Cuban revolution that most people are familiar with and, and rightly so. But another part of the Cuban revolution that almost never gets talked about, but was just as equally important and had a very different character, class character, even the way it was branded, the look was the underground movement in Santiago, in Havana, in all these cities across Cuba, where you had middle and upper class Cubans who were sympathetic to the July 26 movement, who may not necessarily have even been socialists, but were against Batista, against US imperialism and wanted a new system, who were raising funds for the guerrillas underground, who were allowing them to access key infrastructure, supply chains, food, right? Because you, you need to have supply, anybody who, has been an armed struggle will tell you that one of the most crucial things are supply chains. In order to feed people, when, especially when you're blockaded by the enemy, you need underground railroads, an underground way of bringing food, weapons, aid, medicine to the guerrilla fighters who are carrying out that people's war. And it was people like Enrique Oltuski, who has a great book, Mi Vida Clandestina. Check it out if you ever get a chance. It's a really great book. He was actually my fraternity, um, Fiat Alpha. He was somebody who was in the Cuban Revolution. He played an underground role, and he was very close with Fidel and Che. But he worked for Shell Company, interestingly enough. So he works for a bourgeois institution in Havana, wore a suit and tie every day. Nobody even knew he was like a leftist or anything. But he was supporting the Cuban Revolution like with, with money, with, with everything. And that was very important to the Cuban revolution. And if we take that approach, the, the city and the countryside and expand that and see that in the global international level, the global city and the global countryside, right? What is the global city today? North America, Europe, Canada, Australia, the OECD countries that they call them, the countries that are quote unquote industrialized, those tend to be the countries that are the heart of imperialism and capitalism the heart of the finance capitalism, where most of these corporations are based, right? Then you have the global countryside or the periphery, the core and the periphery, the, the periphery being Asia, Africa, Latin America, where you still have a lot of areas that are that are not industrialized yet, that still have a largely peasant community where revolutions are taking place now as we speak. And our role, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we can just sit back and chill. And I add to this, that doesn't mean that things are perfect here either. Not at all, because there's many issues here. Now, the key is how do you connect the issues in the imperial core and link them to the periphery? How do you link the Black liberation struggle, the Chicano liberation struggle, the Navajo, Borican liberation struggle in the US to international uh, struggles around the world. 
how do you win over the oppressed of the oppressed sectors in the belly of the beast to see themselves to abandon this quote unquote America or whatever the fuck, you know, however people want to call it, like to abandon this illusion of this empire, the settler colonial empire, to abandon that and to break ranks and to see themselves as part of this international proletarian family. How do you get people from the hood who are unemployed, who have who are being harassed by the state, by police, to have more sympathy with the DPRK, with Venezuela, than with the US, than with the Republicans and the Democrats? And I think the best example of that to date, I don't think I've seen a better example, uh, is the Panther, the, the Panther Party, the Black Panthers, how they were able to organize the, the revolution, Black liberation movement in the US and go to places like DPRK and go to places like China, go to places like Cuba and Africa and link and, and connect that. Like they, brilliant, Huey P. Nguyen, brilliant. You know, Fred Hampton, excellent at linking the national liberation struggles of the Imperial Corps with the international proletariat. Same with the Young Lords as well, with linking the struggle, the young, the first Young Lords protests, a lot of them started with trash collection. You know, you had in New York, like I'm from New York, in, in, in El Barrio, Spanish Harlem, in the Bronx, the big Puerto Rican communities, the sanitation, New York City sanitation wasn't picking up garbage because those were Puerto Rican neighborhoods. So what did the Young Lords start doing? They started taking all their trash to Fifth Ave, to Madison Ave, to the bougiest parts of New York City. And alongside with that, they were like, and we want Puerto Rico Libre. So they combine the local issues that affect their specific communities with the international struggle. And I think historically that has been the best approach, in my opinion, at least, and, uh, as our role in the belly of the beast, right? Is like linking, understanding that our role is not going to be exactly the same. Like, I'm not going to go to fucking Fifth Ave in New York with an AK and be like, long live peoples or, you know, like I'll, I'll be done within like two seconds, not even. But how can I fundraise money, send money to, to people, go to other countries, right? Do a, what Libre was doing, go to Nicaragua, go to Boricin, go to all these countries, learn, build the solidarity and also bring young people, communists from the Imperial Court to those countries to internationalize the struggle to have an international perspective, to get rid of these false boundaries and borders and see themselves as part of this international working class. Um, so I think that's really the best thing that we can do, education, uh, fundraising. Um, and I think that's something that, that we can do. Yeah, um, and just building off of what Kamal Ramiro, um, Ramiro shared, right? I think it's about, it's about finding um, the particular and the universal, understanding that that our struggle here is not at all disconnected from the struggle of the people in Haiti, is not at all disconnected from the struggle of the people in Honduras, in Venezuela, in Cuba. Our enemy is here. Our enemy is here in empire. And that is the principal um, enemy that we all have to overcome. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's also um uh comrades from um uh what is it i was just reading this comrades just shared with me the people's anti-colonial press just came out with the article 
um, called Land Back and Revolutionary Socialism. It's a beautiful article that ties in um, uh, that ties in indigenous struggle and the black liberation struggle in a way that talks about how these are not only interjoined, but how it then goes um, into um, a more international, um, into the more international sphere of things on why this is important for like every place, right? Um, and I think that these things are important to share. Um, so folks should definitely check that out. Um, it's a beautiful article. Um, and also, yo, folks have to find political homes, right? Because we need to be organizing. Um, the only, like, you, you, like we're not going to have a disorganized revolution. If you read Rest of the Earth, it's very specific. Your revolution cannot be contingent upon spontaneity, right? And so um, not only do we have to address, right, and, and spread light about um, Nicaragua, about Cuba, about Venezuela, right? Spread truth, spread facts, right? Uh, yo, Comrade Ramiro is very good at being what, what I like to call a journalist. We do not have a lot of journalists in Turtle Island. A lot of those people are just spreading propaganda that is not based in fact, it's not based in research, right? Um, and you can easily combat that by what? Giving the facts. You can't, you can't argue science. You can't, you can't argue the fact that Cuba spends 23% of its budget on education. Why? Because it's a fact, right? Um, and so I think that these things are important. I think it's also important to, um, to not only to organize, right, but to begin to move towards um, food sovereignty. A lot of these nations, right, like why is Nicaragua, why does Nicaragua still have their sovereignty? It's because they have food sovereignty. They're able to provide their food. Kamara Mira was talking on that point, right? These are, these are things that even revolutionary countries that have already had their revolutions are learning from Nicaragua. Cuba's learning the importance of food sovereignty. Venezuela's learning the importance of food sovereignty from Nicaragua, right? And so I think, again, like there is nothing that is disconnected. This is a science. There's shell and error, and it's specific to the place that we are, right? So we are here, but we also have relationships in other countries. And we also have obligation as internationalists to take, like Kamara Miro said, take our people to other countries so that they could see for their own eyes and begin to do um, to begin to do what any human would do, right? When you see a government that cares about its people, when you go to a country that's sovereign, it feels different. When I went to Nicaragua, can I tell you that I felt more safe than I've ever felt here in Turtle Island? That's crazy to me. That the place that I grew up that took over and invaded uh, my homeland, right? That I feel more safe in a country that I went to for the first time, right? And I think that says a lot, right? And 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 I think people have that similar experience in the DPRK. Let's talk about it in China. Let's talk about it, right? Um, I think this is this is what we can expect when places like Palestine get free, when places like Boninkin get free, when here in Surah Island gets free. That we don't like that when the government serves the interests of the masses, when the needs of the masses are met, then we then then we are able to be in a position um, to to say that our government actually represents us. And that's that's a contradiction that that imperialism does not create because it's inherently rooted in exploitation. And so we support those countries that have sovereignty and those that are that are fighting for sovereignty um, that are against imperialism. And then we begin to address the on um, the contradictions of imperialism once we get freedom. Follow us at Troika Collective, follow the homie unmasking imperialism on YouTube. Um, it's all lit. 
uh, we're just playing our role, which is many. Um, and we are also building dual power programs here in Turtle Island. Um, we run a popular education school here um, in Florida. Um, and yeah, you know, again, organize and find your political home and hold a political line. Hell yeah. Well, thank you both for coming on. Um, it's awesome being able to talk with you both. Um, I really liked being able to have this conversation because I think that um, two things are rampant here in Turtle Island. One, um, Western chauvinism, and that takes a lot of different forms. Um, one being complete, you know, romanticization of revolution, um, which, you know, keeps it all in the books, which keeps it all online. Um, and as helpful as, you know, personal education and connection and the small mutual aid that, you know, these different outlets can create. Like uh, Comrade Libre said, we got to get organized, we got to find our political homes, and we got to be building with our comrades' actual physical opposition to the imperialist empire. And that is the second problem what we are seeing here is there is no opposition. There is fantastic organizations all across the country doing all kinds of things. But until we start, you know, connecting these dots, until we start really building that solidarity, we're still looking at, you know, trying to um, convince people through arguments on Twitter and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, this isn't our game. This is the game that they set up for us. So what we got to say is, fuck your game. We're going to go, we're going to go build socialism. So. Thank you so much, folks, for coming on. Is there anything else either of you would like to say before you go? Any last plugs? I just want to say a shout out to you, Josh, for doing uh, this podcast and this conversation. I know it must be challenging being in New York and upstate because it's not a lot going on. Um, but I totally think that you're in the right place. And a lot of times it's not just about where you are, but who you are and what you're doing and I think this is having a, a great impact. So just wanted to give you that shout out. I appreciate that very much. It wouldn't be without meeting the both you and others who have pushed me along this way to be able to keep doing great stuff like this. So you're a part of that, comrade. Yeah, um, I'll just close by saying, um, just to sum up what we have all shared on this call, Emil Cabral says, you measure people's potential for liberation based on how different their culture is from the oppressor. And I think we're in the process of creating a revolutionary culture that is not rooted in exploitation. Um, and yo, take care of your mental, right? Make time to take care of self um, because the only way that we're gonna be able to carry on a revolution is by taking care of our mental health, our spiritual health, um, our physical health. Um, so eat water, like eat, drink water, go outside, breathe. Remember that we are human, that we are not perfect um, and that we are the people that carry this on. So we got to take care of ourselves to take care of our community. Hell yeah. Again, thank you so much. Both of you have a great rest of your night. Um, I will catch you both later. Um, but yeah, thanks so much.